Hi, this is Justin. I know I don't usually begin episodes this way, but I wanted to apologize for my recent Rocket Talk sabbatical. The truth is, I took a sabbatical from all things related to science fiction and fantasy for almost a month. Why? Because the internet's been really shitty lately. We've got people going after other people on a nearly daily basis. We've seen doxing and hate speech, and it doesn't seem to be any end in sight. And if it makes me, someone with an immense amount of privilege, want to turn into a turtle, imagine how it makes everyone else feel. I can't help but wonder what kind of irreparable harm we're doing to the future of science fiction and fantasy. In any case, I'm sorry for being gone. I think I found my zen again, thanks in part to reading The Excellent House of Shattered Wings by Aliette de Baudard. I guess I just needed to find something of the joy in SFF again, so thank you, Aliette. If you're a Rocket Tot fan, send Aliette a tweet. Say thanks for me. In the meantime, welcome to episode 58 of Rocket Talk. Thanks for coming back. Welcome to Rocket Talk, the Tor.com podcast. I am Justin Landon, your host as always. I am joined tonight by just-published Tor author Robert Brockway. Robert is senior editor and columnist for Crack.com. He is the author of The Unnoticeables, which is released yesterday, and the cyberpunk novel RX, A Tale of Electro-Negativity, and a comedic nonfiction essay collection titled, and bear with me, Everything is going to kill everybody, colon, the terrifyingly real ways the world wants you dead. He lives in Portland uh, and has some dogs. What's going on, man? Not a lot. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Welcome to Rocket Talk. I have to be honest with you, there's a lot of random ass shit I want to talk about, so hopefully you'll bear with me for a minute. You live in Portland. I do. Do you know Brent Weeks? Like Brent Weeks. I don't think so. He's a he's an epic fantasy author who also lives in Portland. I was just wondering if there was like a science fiction and fantasy horror like author hangout in portland scene well no there's just like five dudes hanging around a campfire but i don't talk to the other dudes much i'm pretty misanthropic just just kind of stay at home and and stay quiet yeah yeah i know uh i know a few i know dan wilson from robopocalypse and all that and uh i guess that's about it for for local folks i did not know that he lived in portland he does he lives the hell out of portland he's a he's a portland guy so I've heard some some things about Portland over the years, and uh, I hear it's I hear it's pretty crunchy. Is this, is this, a, is this a fact? Uh, it used to be. It used to be more so. It's definitely getting more more of a mix now. But our latest influx is a very hip, yuppie kind of California crowd coming in. So it's don't come here expecting you know drum circles and whatnot. I think most of that's down in Eugene these days. Is it kind of Seattle light? Yeah, it's Seattle, like, I think it's about time-locked Seattle, like, five years in the past. Like, whatever is happening in Seattle, you can just come up, you drive down here, spend the two hours or so, and you'll be in, you know, 2010. So, like, Pearl Jam is still cool? <laughs> no, 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 five years, not, five not years. 15. Got it, got it. Not 20. Oh, harsh Pearl Jam. Shots, <laughs> shots fired at Pearl Jam. Yeah, I don't know why I'm, why I'm taking down Pearl Jam. Yeah. We're a little, maybe a little off topic when we start going after. Although, although you know, uh, uh, I don't know if we would. I guess Pearl Jam is kind of grunge, not not punk. But uh, but we'll probably get to some punk music before this thing is over. So you write for Crack.com. This is like your full time job. 
I do. I mostly edit these days, but I'm resuming my regular columns there, too. I had a regular weekly column for about five years straight. Are, are you all based in Portland, or is this like you just work from home? Uh, we're based all over the place. They're based down in Santa Monica, uh, right next to the beach, the lucky bastards. I lived down there for a few years to do in-office stuff, but uh, I'm from Portland, and my wife has jobs and contacts here, so we moved back. But yeah, the editors are kind of scattered, but if they have a center, it's Santa Monica. Yeah, so I don't know that. I actually don't even. I, I know Crack dot com is kind of a big deal, but I don't. Um, I don't frequent it. Is it? Is it? Is it just sort of like entertainment media, generally speaking? Uh, we do mostly. Uh, we do kind of stuff like my first book. I, that that everything is going to kill everybody kind of came from um, my Cracked connections. So it very much reads like an extended Cracked essay. We do like nonfiction essays about real interesting stuff but we also interject jokes in it and occasionally there are columnists like me that uh don't want to handle the responsibility of research so we just make up whatever the hell we want and write stupid stories about choose your own adventure books and whatnot but uh i would say by and large most of it is is factual nonfiction, and research-based interesting uh there's a sports website i don't know if you know sports websites at all but there's a sports website called grantland Mm-hmm. Which is uh, which? It's like essays about sports. So I guess it's in my mind. I'm now classifying Crack.com like that. Like uh, it's it's the the best writing of that sort of uh, niche, if you will. Actually, a lot of our editors are huge fans of Grantland. I'm not, I'm only like superficially familiar with it, but uh, my boss David Wong and Jack O'Brien, editor in chief, will not shut up about how great Grantland is. Awesome. Well, uh, well, I'm going to check out Crack.com from now on because you've made me interested. I was, I was searching through it earlier in preparation for this, so I'm all in now. Good, so, you'll, so, get, you'll get lost. It's like TV tropes to an extent. <laughs> I dig that. So I did notice, though, that they have a podcast. Have you been on the Cracked podcast? Yeah, once or twice. Uh, I've been on, God, I forget where our second episode was, but I was on for a thing we did about color and how color affects your brain. I wrote a, a research-based piece of that for one of our books. Uh, it's an early episode. But you have not been on the podcast to slang your book. No, no. I we nobody really does the uh, the interview thing. It's generally just uh, it's around a theme, like it's actually around a premise. So maybe if I could somehow swing a premise of like why I'm awesome and like trick them into accepting that premise, maybe I could do it. Yeah, as we as we've established, <laughs> this is a fairly challenging thing to do to talk about yourself all the time. I think I just heard a dog chain rattling in the background. Is that is that true? Yeah, sorry about that. No, it's fine because it leads into my next question, which I can't decide. Uh, so you you widely advertise the name of your dogs. Yeah, I love my dogs. My dogs are my favorite people. Which are the detectives Martin Riggs and Roger Murtaugh. Yes, yes, they are. They are my loose cannons. I can't decide if these are like the most awesome names ever or like I'm really mad that you didn't name one of them like South African Gangster. <laughs> If we get enough, I'll have to go into the extra parts. I wanted to. Re- we got a third, and her name's Penny. She's a rescue dog, and I wanted to rename her Rika, the love interest from the second, the blonde German lady. But uh, she's too dumb to learn a new name, so we, we couldn't get her. To, we couldn't get it to stick. It's messing with my theme. I do feel like naming a dog Penny is sort of super meta, considering you know, like Penny was the name of the little girl in Inspector Gadget, and the dog did a lot of the work. Yeah, brain. Brain, yeah. Or Brian. Maybe I'm dyslexic. I think it was brain. 
I hope it was Brian. It was one of those two. <laughs> I think Brian is the name of the dog and Family Guy. I might be interjecting Penny in the brain, Pinky in the brain. Yes, that's another. So another it might one. be Brian, but it's something like that. Yeah. So, are you a huge fan of Lethal Weapon? Is this like a, a passion of yours? I'm a huge fan of buddy cop movies in general, but yeah, Lethal Weapon, at least the first one and maybe parts of two were like the best. If I get two more dogs, I'm naming them Tango and Cash. So would you... <laughs> or maybe Tubbs and Crockett. I don't know. <laughs> oh, uh, so is you, you, you see Lethal Weapon as the finest buddy cop film ever made? Yeah, I would say. I mean, uh, I like Hot Fuzz a lot too, but that's more of a parody of the genre, so I don't know how authentic it is. But I would say... Let's say the first Lethal Weapon was the finest buddy cop movie ever made. That's a bold statement. That's a bold it statement. is, and I am prepared to fight somebody about it if necessary. So I feel like you're kind of slapping two films in the face. One is Turner and Hooch, <laughs> and the and other is true. And the other is uh, don't or stop or my mom will shoot. <laughs> Both excellent genres, but I don't think they can take the number one spot. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're probably right. I think. I think uh, Danny Glover has a little bit of an edge on Estelle Getty. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, maybe not so much these days, but back in the day, I think he could have taken her. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that of that film. My mother had a really uncomfortable crush on Mel Gibson when I was like in my formative years. I think all of our mothers did. You think so? Was yeah, he, I think was, I think a good thirty percent of people our age are born because of Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't understand the attraction, and I wonder how they dealt with, you know, his later antics. I wonder if that was a hard thing for for women of an age to deal with. Yeah, I guess you just kind of hope that you lose interest before your heroes turn evil, as they inevitably do. Yeah, I think Richard Gere kind of falls into this category as well, a little bit. You know, Does it? Did he turn evil? I wasn't. I've not been no, following. It wasn't really the evil. It was just sort of like all like the weird myths that popped up around Richard Gere. Oh yeah, the gerbils you know? and whatnot. yeah, like I feel like they kind of shattered the illusion. Uh, the other one that my mother had a huge crush on was Denzel, and he seems to be holding pretty strong. Oh yeah, who doesn't? So, Come on, I got Denzel. Yeah. He's on my list. <laughs> you and your wife negotiated that. And he's on the list. Yeah, yeah. I think there are more dudes on my list than on hers, though. It's getting unhealthy. <laughs> that's that's all right. I can I can buy into that. So, um, as I was looking at your website, I noticed you have a, a, a pretty sweet illustration uh, on your website. Oh, yeah, my, uh, my banner. I love my banner. Yes, uh, it is you uh, fleeing from what appears to be a large dinosaur. Yeah, I am jumping a dirt bike through an explosion as a Tyrannosaurus chases me. And you're and I'm also holding a bottle of bourbon. And, and sporting a sweet beard. Yeah, as I always do, as is authentic. The bourbon and the beard are both very authentic. So I don't, I don't mean to call into question the authenticity of your beard, but you know, it's kind of a shtick in authordom to have a beard. Um, did you have the beard long before you decided to be an author? Uh, before they paid me for it, sure. I think I've had the beard since two thousand. I guess it's been ten years. Two thousand five. Now, ten, this is a decade. Old beard. I, I pay people to hack chunks off it once in a while so that it doesn't overpower me, but the base of it is about 10 years old. So you, I was working IT support when I started growing it, so now I was not working as an author yet. As every good IT support guy does. Uh, interesting. I, yeah, I feel like it's, it's kind of a path. You know, I'm a very clean-shaven gentleman. I feel like this dooms me to a, to a life of not being an author, which is, which is fine, but... 
you know? Well, I think at this point, it might be more of a Portland thing. I think you're, I mean, not many people had a beard when I first started growing a beard, but maybe it's like contagious and it just spread across the city. This is entirely possible. Uh, Brent Weeks, who I mentioned before, also has a, a beard. I mean, it's a goatee. Does that count? Uh, no. No. Goatees don't count, nor do soul patches. <laughs> I mean, cheek coverage or bust. I'm all, I'm all in on the soul patch not counting. Uh, <laughs> well, so if you're saying cheek coverage is important, like, do the sides have to match, or is it just cheek coverage is important? You just, they, you can't see the lower half of your face is the ah, deal. Okay. I don't care what you do with it, but... So it's like a it's like a hairy bandit mask. <laughs> I like it. I I tried to grow a beard once, but I couldn't stop licking my mustache. Is that well, weird? Sounds like a personal problem. <laughs> yeah, that's a little weird. <laughs> Maybe you should cut your mustache back a little bit. I don't know. But it was such a new feeling. I just I just I, I, it's like it's like sort of like what I imagined if one day I woke up with breasts. You know what I mean? Like I uh, just yeah. it just was something new. I just didn't Well, when you put it like that, I guess I understand. Well, I, I appreciate it. Uh, all right. So, now that we've gone down several weird rabbit holes, uh, <laughs> maybe we can talk about your book a little bit, uh, which is called Oh yeah. Which remember that thing? Oh yeah, kind of. It's been a while since you've written it or edited it. But <clears throat> uh, but it's coming out. It came, it came out as of this airing yesterday. So um, let's talk about it. It's called The Unnoticeables, and maybe you got a little elevator pitch? Uh, I need to develop one. I, I do not have an elevator pitch. Uh, it's a weird book. I usually just start off talking about the premise and the overall characters. So it, there are two characters. Uh, it takes place in two timelines. In 1977, there's Carrie. He's a punk rocker in New York City. And he's got a problem in that all of his friends are starting to disappear and they're seeing some weird, unexplainable stuff, some dark shapes in the shadows and uh, faceless people that they can't quite remember as soon as they stop looking at them. And his friends are disappearing. And then meanwhile, in 2013, Los Angeles, Caitlin is a stunt woman, or at least an aspiring stunt woman, and she's having very similar problems, except for hers is uh, bright lights in the sky that look like angels. And she's recently met one of her all-time favorite crushes, uh, how do I say this without getting in legal trouble? A high school sitcom from the 90s. He used to star on a high school sitcom from the 90s in this fictional world. And uh, he's starting to turn evil and coming after her. So they've got to discover between their two timelines how those things are linked and how to stop it. All right. So I read this book a while ago. Uh, I want to say I was in New York in September. You were one of the first. Yeah, and I actually I was at your I was at your agent's office, and uh, he gave me the like the red copy. Oh yeah, the bound manuscript. Yeah, like the very and he said he had like one copy left. He gave it to me to take on the plane. I read it on the plane on my flight back to Texas, and uh, you know blew right through it. I mean it isn't very long, which made it easy to blow right through it. But it was it was really interesting. And I have to ask: Is this Saturday morning sitcom character based on AC Slater? I mean, he might rhyme with A.C. Slater. I don't know how much legal trouble I'm going to get. I've given that. I've been hassling the guy for so long that I just... Oh, have you? Is this a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. I started in my columns for Cracked. And uh, now that I've written a book about it, I feel like I may have crossed a line into that he might actually notice me and start coming after me. And I am not prepared to take that kind of evil. <laughs> so so it's totally fictional. So are you... uh, if, you're, if you're listening, uh, Mario Lopez, this has... It's just totally, it's totally fictional, and I have a wife. I, I can't 
fully explain the differences between AC Slater and Mario Lopez. Because in my mind, he is AC Slater. Right, that's because he has no soul. Uh, he's not a human being. He just is whatever he's doing at the time. They just kind of prop him up and wind him up and let him go. So it's like Weekend at Bernie's, but like more interactive. Yeah, kind of. Except for he's the corpse and the puppeteer. Oh. Yeah. That's some deep shit. So, so you could... Uh, would it be fair to say that you're... That you're they're not really villains. I guess like your antagonists in this book are in many ways based on your feelings about Mario Lopez. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps they are based on my gut feelings, but it's more, it's more a general feeling. I guess, I guess it's your reaction to possible sociopaths that you can't really identify what's wrong with them, but you know something is wrong with them, like just looking at them. Like they're trying too hard to pass as people and they're not quite pulling it off. And that's the kind of general idea I had between between the villains and why that might be. Yeah, it is, it is a pretty horrifying idea, and obviously you take it to some level of extremity uh, uh, to to for the purposes of storytelling. But like anything in fiction, if you dial it back a few notches, like you can actually look at it from a real perspective or in a, a real life perspective. And in that regard, I think that's what makes this book so scary. Uh, in, in points is this idea that somebody who you think should be one thing is, is not and can be wearing the face of, uh, of somebody that you love or respect or whatever and is really somebody that wants to eat you. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it started from a ridiculous concept, but I like to think that I pulled it back down a little bit into just a general fear of inhuman things passing as human and the kind of running theme of that, I don't want to spoil too much of it, but it's a running theme in the book is there's like a code that makes people who they are and what they are. And the running theme is what defines humanity and what, what makes you an actual person. Like, what is that? What's the difference between you and something pretending to be you? Right. So the two timelines are, are distinct in the book, and they kind of run throughout the whole book simultaneously. And in the past, you've got Carrie, who is this fuck-up. Uh, who drinks a lot of beer, I mean, a lot of beer, and is sort of living the 1970s punk scene. Now, I don't, I don't know how old you are, but my guess is you didn't live the 1970s punk scene. No, no, so, I'm 35. So we are of an age. What, what brought you to the 1970s punk scene? Well, it started with just the general sort of premise, and I, I went from the premise of that there's a code to define what everything is, including humanity. And I, I went to the people that would hate that the most, the kind of archetypes and characters. And I came up with punk rockers, obviously the anti-authoritarian thing, and aspiring movie folks in L.A. who all think they're this beautiful snowflake that's going to make it and everybody's going to worship them. In their strange way, they have a lot in common in that they're both bucking this sort of conformacy thing. But also, I, I was and to some extent am uh, somewhat of a punk. <laughs> Those were all my friends growing up. And I feel like they deserved their own book. Uh, I, like, loved Carrie as a character. He has a really strong voice that you write with. Uh, and has this real compelling uh, drive to the, to the narrative. But he's, he's not terribly charming. No, but but somehow you pull off making him uh, uh, really engaging as a character. 
her, I've heard the, the name Hunter S. Thompson associated with this book a few times, which is strange to me. I find his name associated with any book that's dealing with a character who is self-medicating. <laughs> that's a nice uh, way to put it. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's really, I don't know if he's like really a fair comparison for what you're doing, but I, but I find that, that name thrown around a lot when you talk about somebody like Carrie as a primary character who's drinking himself into an oblivion and we're seeing the story through his eyes and it's sort of you know, warped and fucked up because he can't really relate with reality. What did you, what do you think about that, that sort of the Hunter S Thompson label? Well, he's certainly an inspiration. I really like his work and I, I sure some of that, like with all, with all of your favorite authors, I'm sure some of that seeps into you. So maybe they're catching up on that, but he also just kind of made himself the poster boy for altered state. So anytime you write about somebody that's going through something less than totally sober and stone faced, you're going to get comparisons to like the fringe and that that's that's hunter that's good old hunter uh less hallucinogens and more just whiskey and anger <laughs> and carry he would probably probably wouldn't get along with the hallucinogen crowd but uh as long as they stuck to bourbon i guess they'd get along fine yeah, you know, as uh, if, we're, if we're sticking with this uh, A.C. Slater motif here, just a little bit. Just bear with me just a little bit. I feel like Carrie could be Tory, punches people to show him that he loves them kind of attitude. Oh, wait, so there's a whole, like, sub subconscious Saved by the Bell archetype. Who's Screech in the book? Oh, Screech. Uh, you know, the names are escaping <laughs> me at the moment, but there is there is that one kid who's always i think he's the first one that kind of gets poached of the core crowd i forget who is his name i'll have to think about it for a minute but uh i, I think if you look at carrie's crew you could probably archetype out each of the same yeah there might characters. be there's this might be a hidden saved by the bell metaphor throughout this <laughs> i'll tell you what man if it was i would be all in <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna have to reread my own stuff and be like did i just steal the plot from saved by the bell and make it a horror book <laughs> so so you've got this thing, and I just out of curiosity, did you put a lot of thought into the kind of beer that, that Carrie was drinking? Is Carrie your brand loyalist, or is he is he just drinking whatever is cheap? He's somewhat of a brand loyalist, but anything cheaper will buy his brand. But yeah, I, I definitely researched what beers would be available in the region at the time for the price to figure out what his his was. He's a Schlitz, and then occasionally Iron City man. If you're if you're looking. Hey man, if, if you're into 1970s uh, New York authenticity, you've nailed it, I'm sure. Uh, so you've got this 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 sort of uh, 1970s thing going on, which I think, in terms of a period, I mean, I don't know that much about 1970s punk, but it all rang very authentic to me. This concept that people could disappear and nobody would notice because people are disappearing all the time because they're high or drunk or being kidnapped or dying in alleys. Um, and that all, it all rung very true. And then this, and then you've got this Hollywood thing, which, which, uh, which rings true in its own way. And, uh, your, your second protagonist there is a, is a struggling, struggling stunt, uh, woman. You say you lived in Santa Monica for a time. Did you ever find yourself at one of these Hollywood parties? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, they're very foreign and weird to me. And I guess that's kind of the, what I was trying to channel that sense of, these not really being people and interacting like people and everybody's got this weird agenda that they don't want to talk about. And it was just, I've never felt more out of place than some of those upscale bars and parties that they throw in fancy hotels or hilltop houses. But yeah, I've gone to a few and they scared the hell out of me. Have you been to a science fiction and fantasy convention yet? I have not. I'm going to Comic-Con in three days. 
I don't know that Comic Con will give you uh, this vibe that I'm. I'd be fascinated to get your feedback on. You'll have to go to a local con at some point, a smaller con, especially a writer-heavy con. You know, one that's almost all literary and has lots of writers there and lots of aspiring writers there, because there's this sort of that similar phenomenon where you'll go into like the bar of a convention and you'll see, you know, a couple of New York Times bestsellers and they sort of have their aura around them and people who are attracted to them and want to be near them. And then you'll have like some agents and the, you know, the, the, the thing around them, you'll have some editors, people around them. And then you'll have these aspiring writers that are all on the fringe, you know, and all trying to get a chance to talk to these various people who they're there to sort of pitch or get to know or develop relationships with. It's really weird. That sounds awful. It sounds like I would hate that. <laughs> it's not, it's not, I don't, it's not, it doesn't actually come off that way because at the end of the day, there's like a much different, you know, um, self-awareness, I think, more so well, than Hollywood. Well, you're right in that it sounds exactly like LA, like Hollywood. Like that's how everything was everywhere I went there and it really unsettled me, so. I've always been very uncomfortable with it in this, commu- in the science fiction and fantasy uh, convention world only because almost everybody who attends these conventions, not almost a lot of people who attend these conventions, all are aspiring writers. There's this huge um, world of people who want to be in the business. And, uh, and there's only so many spots, right? And it's just, it's this weird thing that I've always observed and I've never quite been able to figure out as somebody who's done the Hollywood thing. I'd, I'm going to need to get you one, and you should write an article about it. It would be very cool. Okay. Put it on, I, I put it on your list. I'm full of suspicion and fear. <laughs> Thank you. I, I may have biased your article. This is probably, <laughs> this is probably really bad reporter, uh, reporter stuff, but whatever. You've got these two things going on and these two timelines, and um, what I found fascinating about the book that is, I think, a little bit unique today, uh, and I don't read a ton of horror, but I do read, I do read some, and... This concept of the unknowable, sort of unknowable evil, which I think you you play with quite a bit here. We we never really know. Uh, you know, we, you get a hint of it of of what the agenda is of these bad guys, but it's not like uh, a, a real sociopath who just gets off on killing people or whatever, uh, or the typical serial killer type thing. I mean, this is a a primordial chaotic evil entity who who wants to reap chaos or sow chaos. And I think that's, it's a bit of a throwback to me to like sort of the Lovecraftian type, a noble evil. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, there's definitely elements of that. Again, I, just like with uh, Hunter S. Thompson, I'm a huge fan of Lovecraft, so I'm sure elements of that leak in whether I mean it or not. But I also think he really nailed the approach to horror that, I mean, it's not ex- exclusive to Lovecraft, but the... Uh, the villain isn't scary when you take off the mask. Like, it loses it to me. I mean, maybe it is to a lot of people, but I've watched so many horror movies that's it's just that I've become jaded. So, like, if you take off the mask, I'm done. Like, the origin story is kind of the end of it. So, I think the origin story is necessary, but it needs to come when you've killed the series because the only way the scares are even somewhat authentic is when the monster is still almost entirely hidden and entirely unexplained. So, I went after, like, that psychological aspect of, like, Fear is the unknown. It's not fear of the unknown. The fear is the unknown. Like, uh, you know, like the first alien. You don't see that monster until the very end of the movie. You just see little quick glimpses and shadows. And it was as good as the monster design was on that. Nothing compares to when you don't see it at all. With that in mind, then, I suppose the Unnoticeables is not the only scares we're going to get. There's more on the way? Yeah, this is. I sold it, conceived it, and sold it as a trilogy. So you're going to get more answers, first of all, but like I said, um, not, not everything is going to be answered until the end. But certainly, 
certainly the stakes get upped in the next book, which uh, I think we're official now is called The Empty Ones. And that'll be out July 7th, 2016. And Carrie and Caitlin are back? Yeah, Carrie and Caitlin are the protagonists through all three books. Will you continue to be, will it be, become chrono-linear? No, it'll still be the two timelines. I mean, I don't, I, how much can I say without spoiling it? To some extent, they will cross over. But again, these are related stories that are tied together happening 35, 40 years apart. I am very excited to hear that. Because I well, so you know, I don't mean to. This is I don't mean to this to be critical at all. But like to me, the book is most exciting, or not the voice is most exciting from Carrie's point of view. Well, yeah, he's his is continuing. It's not all direct sequels from one year to the next, but he goes up until 1982 or so in total. So Carrie's is still following throughout that timeline. That's that's cool because not that Caitlin isn't isn't interesting and she she's super interesting but her uh, her voice just isn't the same sort of punchiness that uh, that you get when you're when you're doing carry and i got really swept up in that sort of punk rock punchy sentences and punching people in the face and i don't know i just dug that well that's because you're no good punk clearly <laughs> entirely possible uh, what's really interesting about this, I found that when we were selling, uh, we've also sold UK rights, was that the feedback was all polar opposite. All the Americans said Carrie's voice was great. I mean, Caitlin's was okay, but Carrie's voice was amazing. And all of the UK people said Carrie was okay, it was a little much, but Caitlin is amazing. <laughs> like, That's so they interesting. They were completely flipped. I don't know why. Well, I, have I guess the- he's I have a theory. Boorish. Well, I have a theory, right? Like, the British are very polite. And... They don't like people that aren't polite. (laughs) (laughs) So he's just, even in fiction, he's just too boorish to get along with. Yeah, I think this is entirely possible. And your use of the word boorish is also very United Kingdom. So Yeah, I don't think they ever said that, but I'm putting those words in their mouth. Because I picture them with monocles and top hats and monocles being popped out. Oh, my. It it seems like the kind of word they would choose. And then (laughs) I also think anybody not from America has like a deeper fascination with Hollywood than we do. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's it. That's, you know, that's what we put out there these days. For the last 20 years or so, at least, that's really all we put out there. So, And I think sort of people are like very fascinated by the mechanisms of it. And, and I'm also fairly certain that nobody from the United Kingdom would have noticed anything similar about A.C. Slater or anything like that. So um, Yeah, he's just whatever your... I mean, that's what I use him as, is just whatever your B-list celebrity, like, used to be in Tiger Beat, Teen Beat sort of thing. I mean, you could go back... 20, 30 years, and it would be one of the Korgs or something. It's just that kind of character archetype. Yeah, that would actually be a fun uh, contest for you to do at some point, would be to sort of like, in your country, who is this guy? (laughs) Find the sociopath. (laughs) Who's the monster? (laughs) Find the creepiest B-list celebrity you know who who could totally fit this archetype. I dig that. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, and you could get me sued in every country. (laughs) Hey, I'm not here to do that. This is, you know, nope. I'm, I'm sure you have the disclaimer, just like everybody else, that nobody appearing in this book is a work of, you know, real people. Yeah, but then you made me say it, like, on this thing. No, no, no. That's an, ins- that's an inspiration, Robert. It's just an inspiration. Oh, okay. It's, a, it's an homage to, uh, to Mario Lopez. Yeah, no, that's it's, what a, that it's an homage to his fictional character. <laughs> He's sure, later. yeah. There. Even farther removed. Just get me any accountability I can subtract from this equation would be great. That's right. Uh, your character in the book did not appear on Dancing with the Stars. so Yeah, the timelines differ at that point. Right. 
Uh, you, you want to, you sure don't want to be anachronistic. That would be a real, a real deal killer uh, in these uh, speculative genres. I have to tell you, I, I wrote down, I pre-wrote down some questions, and the next question on the list was, how many times a day do you use the word fuck more or less than carry? <laughs> less, I would say less. <laughs> That's, that's For example, I don't think I've sworn yet. You, you haven't. I've, I've actually outsworn you by a factor of, of many, which is not something that I'm typically uh, doing a lot of, but, uh, but I've taken a bit of a sabbatical from Rocket Talk for the last couple of weeks because I've been so annoyed with, uh, with all the internet dramas that go on, which you must feel so blessed to not be a part of. Well, we're, we're a part of it. <laughs> Whether or not I want to be a part of it, and I really don't want to be a part of it. I mean, we deal with with pop culture, internet culture stuff. So somebody's always going to be writing about it or pitching about it or trying to write about it. So I, I have to be up on all of the stupid drama about everything. Yeah, it's weird because science fiction and fantasy, which used to, you know, has just seemed to have become like rife with shittiness lately yeah it used to be it used to be so inclusive because we couldn't afford to exclude anybody i mean we were all picked on so if you want to be a part just god come in and swell the ranks but now you're being i guess turned away yeah i actually have some feelings about that i've sort of observed over the years that um that when nerddom became popular there was this sort of self this desire to sort of self-protect and like sort of keep the things the way they were yeah, I guess you get defensive about your identity. Yeah, I think that's I think that's part of what's going on. I also think the internet makes people really shitty. Yeah, that's true. That working for the internet, I can vouch for that personally. Which amazes me because so many great people are on the internet. Like I like you. <laughs> I, I like me too, and you're okay. <laughs> Based on your limited evidence thus far. Yeah. I mean, I liked uh, I liked your book. I mean, that's. But uh, but anyway, I've, I've been on a bit of a sabbatical from, from Rocket Talk, so I'm, I'm glad to be back tonight and, and manage to get through a show. So uh, before we kind of wrap up, uh, you've mentioned a couple of people that you're into, which are, you know, that you have a thing for Lovecraft, you have a thing for uh, uh, Hunter S. Thompson, but, but what do you, who do you read these days that kind of gets you going? Oh, God, who are the last few? Well, I'm, I'm reading right now, I'm reading a few classics. I'm reading uh, The Exorcist at the moment. I'm about halfway through that. It's such a good book. Like, uh... Only was familiar with the movie, but modern stuff, um, not so much horror, but kind of genre skipping. I like Chuck Wendig a lot. I think I thought his stuff was great. And uh, getting into fantasy, Sam Sykes. I've got Sam Sykes' book. I'm excited to start that. And I have a couple of from Mike Cole on here, too. I don't know. Like I'm just kind of skipping across. It's hard to pin down one genre for me. But yeah, no, Sam. Sam's a lot of fun. Uh, his... His books are a blast. I'm a big fan. He's a frequent uh, guest on this podcast. He, oh, cool. We have something we call Samisodes. <laughs> Samisodes? Samisodes. They need a special name. Yeah. Well, I don't... I solo these things, uh, but occasionally Sam comes on as a sort of a regular co-host with me, and we call those Samisodes. Uh, one of them is going to come out the week after this one, and it's about sex. And Sam... Sex scenes, rather. Not about, mm. not about actual intercourse, but about intercourse in fiction. And he reads uh, a scene aloud for us. So, oh, that's rough. I encourage you to tune in <laughs> the week after your show. See exactly how erotic his voice is. If it's quite as erotic as I picture it, I mean, that's going to be something to check out. And we have an erotica author as a guest on that episode. Ooh. So, yeah, saucy. Yeah. So, if you're ready to expand your genres, we're going to have some some recommendations for you. 
Always ready to expand genres. All right, good deal. Well, The Unnoticeables comes out on July 7th, which uh, was yesterday, and so people can go out and get it. I, uh, I am a fan of it. Uh, I'm always a fan of strong voices, and I think that in a lot of ways this is, this is ultimately a book about that strong voice. We appreciate you being on, Robert. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, this has been Rocket Talk. <laughs>